I don't have a particularly good sense of direction. I'm okay, but thank God for GPS because it gets me where I need to be and almost everybody has it now and it's just so much easier to get where you need to go. Uh, you know, it's not like the old days where you had to stop and ask for directions if you were lost somewhere or like many of us did, just don't stop and ask for directions and just stay lost, right? That was the way things used to be. But now, GPS, you can pretty much get, get where you need to be. But when, I'm, when I don't have a GPS, I'm not awesome. And I don't even just mean driving a car. Like, if my wife and I were to go to the mall, and you know how if you, like, I don't know, sort of browse the mall or whatever, like you're just walking all down this aisle, and you're looking at these stores, and you come back, and you... So a lot of times what will happen is we'll go into a store, and then we'll come out of the store, and I will start walking the wrong way like the way we just came from, and, and my wife's like, uh, Chris, it's over here, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I, just like disoriented or something like that. Like, I, I just don't have a good, a good sense of this, and, I, and I'd like to say it's because I'm getting older, but I did this when I was pretty young, too. Like, I just don't have that good, like, internal GPS, and so I, I, don't, um, I, I, I don't stop and ask for directions, and I don't often ask for help, and I think there's something inside us, not just about directions, but I think there's something inside of us where in a lot of areas we don't, just don't like asking for help. We'd rather just figure it out on our own. Um, and, and maybe it's a pride thing for us, but at the gym or uh, in, in, at work or in school or something, we don't like to ask other people for help. And in fact, there's, there's kind of a phenomenon about that, like people really don't like asking for help. I found this list online of 11 things people will say rather than ask for help or 11 reasons why people don't ask for help. And I want to read these to you, and I want to see how many of these you have found yourself saying, or how many of these really resonate with you when you think about asking someone to help you, how many of these things kind of pop up in your brain. Number one, I don't want to be a burden on them, right? That's something we say instead of asking for help. Uh, number two, if I ask for help, it's being selfish. That's not all about me. I, you know, I don't, want to, I don't want to ask for help. That, that seems kind of selfish. Number three, I'd feel obligated to help them in return, and ain't nobody got time for that. I can't. If they're going to help me, cool, but I don't want to feel obligated like I owe them one or whatever. Number four, it's not that important. Oh, I'll figure it out. It's not that important. They don't need to help me. I don't need to ask for help. Number five, I don't want people to know how bad it is at work, at school. Man, I'm supposed to be managing this project. I'm not doing great. If I ask for help, they're going to get to see how well it's not going kind of thing, right? Uh, another one, number six, I feel they have better things to do than to help me. That's a judgment call, a limiting belief. It's a judgment call we make on other people. Oh, they're, they're probably too busy. They've got too much going on. I don't want to bug them. They probably have better things to do. Number seven, I don't want to come across that I can't handle X, Y, and Z. Like, I don't want to let them see the chink in the armor. Like, I want to keep up appearances related to that. Number eight, I don't want to appear weak. You know, that's not good if I appeared weak at work, at school, whatever. I don't want to do that, so I'm not going to ask for help. I don't want to be perceived as failing. That would be terrible professionally, personally. I don't want people to think I'm failing, so I'm not going to ask for help. Uh, I don't have time to find or look for help. That's a good excuse that we often trot out why we don't ask for help. And then this one is sort of a classic. I, I've, I've kind of hit this one myself. It won't be done the way I want it to be done, and I'll have to redo it, which is sort of classic, like, control freak behavior. I'm not going to hand this off and ask anybody to help me because I'm just going to have to They're only going to do it like 90% as well as what I would do if I just did it myself. Might as well just go do it myself, you know, and, 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 and you, you pay for that in some ways. There, there's, a, there's a downside to that. And I think this is a pretty universal thing, that we have a hard time asking for help. And if we are going to rewrite our futures, which is what this series is about, to have a new future, 
to change from who we have been to become all of God, all that God is calling us to be. If we're going to rewrite our future, we're going to need some help. We're going to have to ask other people to come alongside us and push us because other people can see your blind spots. That's why they're called blind spots because you can't see them. But other people see you and they can see what you're doing and you're going to have to ask them to help you and they're going to step in and they're going to challenge you in some ways or they're going to help expand your vision and and really push you in some awesome ways. But we're going to need to reach out to become all that God is calling us to be. We need to reach out to other people. We can't do this alone. We are wired up, actually, to rely on other people. This is baked into our brains, even. I, I read a study, it was very interesting, about mirror neurons. They, scientists didn't really discover mirror neurons until the 1980s. And before that, we always believed that the way I know you're sad is because you're crying. The way I know you're happy is because you're smiling. The way we relate to other people is we can observe, this is the thing they got going on, and now I know how they are. But in fact, it's actually more complicated than that. They discovered, by studying monkeys, they discovered this thing called mirror neurons. Basically, it works like this. When you cry, the crying thing goes off in my own head. When you're excited and smiling, the the excited, happy thing goes off in my head as well. My brain mirrors what it sees in you. So, So literally, like if you're crying, it's like I'm crying with you. If you're excited, I'm excited with you. This is why babies, when daddy smiles to the baby, the baby smiles. When mama laughs, the baby will laugh. They're mirroring what is going on inside of you. And it's actually designed that way. This is why you can't can't grow by yourself. You can't change. You can't develop more empathy or sympathy or compassion for people by yourself. You have to actually get out there with the people and let your mirror neurons fire off while theirs are firing off. You've got to be with people. If, you, if your life is on the couch watching the news, that's not going to do it for you. That's not going to help you develop. A, a researcher named Aya Kaboni uh, says this. This is pretty interesting. He says, the development of a sense of self is facilitated by rich social contexts. Our idea of who we are does not flow out of some sort of true self deep within. Rather, our self has two components, self and the other. Who we are is a complex mix of our own nature interacting with and mimicking the people around us. But there is no such thing as a complete person in isolation from others. We are a product of who we are with. So this idea that if you want to find yourself, you're going to go off to the woods and like, I'm just, I need to discover myself and I need to sort of eat, pray, love my way around the world or whatever it is, like I'm going to go discover it, that's not actually how it works. You don't find yourself by yourself. You find yourself as you develop rich social contexts and you have the community speak into your life. And so in order to become who God has called us to be, you're going to need other people. It's actually hardwired into that. And we don't value it enough. We value people pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. We value people making it on their own. Look at the heroes of our culture from yesteryear, like Superman and Lone Ranger. These people, like, get it done by themselves. They don't need anyone. They're strong. And and we kind of have that in the lore of our culture. I think it's changing now with like Avengers and Justice League and some of these things where it's like no one hero has everything. We kind of need a team to make this work. And I think we, we're getting that. But still, we love, the, we love the story of I'm independent. I did this on my own. It's so baked into our country that we have a national holiday called Independence Day where we remember that we told someone we don't need them. 
We don't need you, King George. We're going to do this on our own. You know, like a, like a, a, a teenager. Like we're just like, hey, I don't need this. I don't need you people. And, and we, that's baked into our culture is I'm independent. And we're missing something there when we lean into that so hard. We're missing something. In fact, I think about this in parenting. I don't want to raise my kids to be independent. Yes, I don't want them living in my basement at 25, but we just have a crawl space anyway, so, you know, it's not that comfortable. They're not going to want to do it either. Um, but I, I'm not raising kids to be independent. I'm raising kids to be interdependent on the body of Christ and on God and to, and to lean on the community and, and to be strong contributors to, to that community. And so... Um, for, for me to be all that God is calling me to be, I need to be interdependent. I need to connect with other people. I need to enlist the help of other people. And for you to be all that God's calling you to be, you're going to need to ask for help. And that's hard for us. We don't like doing it. I want to read to you an account from the New Testament, from the book of Matthew. And there's this woman in, that's written down, and this is one of those stories in the New Testament that's a little bit awkward. Like, there's parts of this that I, I almost wish hadn't been written down. Because this woman uh, is very desperate, and she comes to Jesus, and she asks him for help. And he has what seems like a really odd and sort of awkward interaction with her. And I want to read it to you in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew recorded it for us, starting in verse 21. We'll put it up on the screen. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, A Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Okay, you need to understand where this is. Jesus goes to the very north of Israel, a northwest uh, modern-day area would be like Lebanon, kind of that area up there in the northwest on the coast. Jesus goes up there. So he's not in the heart of the Jewish people land, and so there's other people around. And it says here that he meets this woman, and it refers to her as a Canaanite woman. Now, we read that, and we just go, oh, it's a Canaanite woman. Some, I don't know who they are, but whatever. But a, a first century Jew reading that, the Canaanites are the bad guys. The Canaanites are the people that the Jews came into, and Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho, that whole thing. That's the Canaanites, that are the people who live there in that land. And so to the Jews, they're sitting there going, oh, that's like our enemy for the last millennia or so. Like, they're the other side of the tracks. These are the bad folks. This is a Canaanite woman, so you have to understand how that feels to them reading this in the first century or as they experienced it. Here's this outsider woman coming to talk to them, and it's very challenging to them. Now, this woman, why does she come to Jesus? Well, she's at the end of a rope. She says she's desperate. Her daughter is, is dealing with a demon possession. It may, may have been a medical thing, maybe an actual demon possession. Like, we don't know what's going on there. But it, whatever she has tried to help her daughter, it's not working. And parents are very motivated to help their kids, right? So she's like, I will do anything. And she's reached the end of a rope. And reaching the end of your rope feels awful. It's anxious. Um, it's scary. When you realize you don't have enough resources in you to get the thing done, when she realizes, I can't make this better for my kid. But the good thing about reaching the end of your rope is that Maybe at the end of your rope, you cling on to Jesus, and you, you hold on to his rope, and that, and that gives you the, the power and the strength to get through whatever it is. So she comes to Jesus because she loves her daughter, and then there's this weird Jewish Gentile Canaanite thing in the background that's going to come up here in different ways. Look at verse 23. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. Well, that's a little weird. 
She comes to Jesus, please have mercy on me, son of David. She refers to him, son of David, as in Jewish guy. Hey, Jewish guy, please have mercy on me and help me. And he doesn't answer at all. He kind of stonewalls her. That's awkward. This is one of these stories my wife and I were talking about it this morning. She's like, yeah, that's one of those that maybe shouldn't be in the Bible, you know? Like, it's a little weird. Like, from a PR perspective, it doesn't look, it's not a good look for Jesus. Like, he needs to get a, a firm, a PR firm around him on this one. It's a little weird. Stonewalls her, and then, nevertheless, she persisted, right? She goes after the people that are around him. The disciples, and she's like, hey, can you help me? Can you help me? Can you help me? And they're like fed up with her, and they go back to Jesus, and they're like, will you make this woman go away? She's like really annoying, and she just won't quit. Well, look what happens, verse 25. But she came and, uh, wait, am I right? right? Yeah, but she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Ouch! <laughs> That really is weird. So not only did he ignore her the first time, but she comes and kneels before him and she's begging, please help me. And he says, yeah, I'm not going to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs as if you're one of the dogs. To understand that, though, understand that the Jews referred to Gentiles like her as dogs. That is a cultural thing going on. I'm not saying Jesus agrees with it. I'm saying he's entering into it for a moment to make a point. And, and, and this is going to be something that is taught to the people around him about how big God's heart is. Because their mindset is, as Jews, their mindset is, we are the special people of God. God loves us and doesn't really love everybody else. He's, maybe he loves them a little bit, but he's mostly about us. And so this is their attitude that he's echoing here. She's a Gentile dog. She's not one of the in crowd. That's what he says back to her. And I think he's heightening the tension for his disciples based on where he goes next with it. But he, but he challenges her on that and, and, and listens, to what, uh, listens to what she says. Verse 27, she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed Instantly. Jesus enters into their mindset that, that God's only for the Jews. And this becomes a story and an opportunity. I bet it's a story they told forever how Jesus extends that love of God beyond the, chosen, the frozen chosen people in, in the center. God is doing a new thing here. And he's challenging them. And, and, and in this moment, he says, man, you have great faith. You reached the end of your rope. You came to me. I'm willing to help you. I'm, I'm going to make this right. And, and Jesus, with his power, heals her. And, and it's a game changer for her. And I think her steps to transformation are our steps to transformation. The, the process that she follows here is the process we should follow. So I just want to give to you three ideas, and then we'll, we'll be done, of how she is transformed here. And, and what we can learn from them. Number one, we need to acknowledge our powerlessness and swallow our pride. For her to go to a man, a Jewish man, a, a rock star rabbi Jewish man in town, for her to go to him, she had to swallow her pride and she had to acknowledge that she was powerless. She had to say, I can't do this on my own. She had to let go of the rope she was holding onto. And it's a pride-sucking siege to, to go there to Jesus and be like, hey, would you fix this for me? Will you help me out? And this is the way that all of us come to faith. 
Some of you in this room are not Christians at all. And so I'm, I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you're checking it out, and I'm glad you're asking questions, and I'm glad you're poking and prodding this whole thing. Um, but, but here's something I want you to know. The people that are Christians in this room, all of them at one time were not. At one time, they weren't following Jesus. And the journey from I'm not following Jesus to I am starts here. It's when you say, I don't have power, I am not God, God is real and I am not him. When we start there, that, that's how we get on this journey with God and following after him. It's, it's, it's swallowing our pride and, and reaching out to Jesus and saying, hey, you're it and, and I'm not. It's one of the things I love about Alcoholics Anonymous. If you've ever studied the 12 steps of AA, they're so good. And one of the things in AA, one of the first steps is basically you have to admit uh, we, we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. That's the thing you kind of have to say in the 12 steps. And there's a powerlessness that is the beginning of transformation. The beginning of a changed life through AA starts with you saying, there's a higher power and I'm not that higher power and I don't have control over this thing in my life. Powerlessness. And I think that's phenomenal. And I always say, because uh, a lot of us are like, well, I'm glad I'm not addicted to alcohol that I have to go through that process. All of us should go through that process. People in AA are not any, any more broken than the rest of us. In, in most cases, they're just more honest about it. They're just like, yep, I can't do it. And that's where we need to start, is to say, yep, I can't do it. But we think we can. We have enough power to kind of get it, to, you know, make it happen for a little while. And I'm telling you, if you're not following God, let me, let, me t- let me tell you this, your power, you may think it comes from, you know, I have a good career and I'm successful and I'm making money and I have a 401k and my family's doing pretty well right now and my health is good and all of those things. But what happens when all those things are taken away from you? Then where do you go? You may think Christianity is a crutch for weak-minded people to lean on. And I'm telling you, you're leaning on something too. What is it? I'm trying to point you to the God who is the only thing that you can lean on that won't fail you. Because your health will fail. Money can be taken away. Career can be gone. Relationships can break. But you follow after Jesus and he gives you meaning and purpose in this life that suffering and pain cannot take away from you. And so the beginning of that process is, hey, I'm, I'm powerless. Acknowledge your powerlessness. Now, let me add another piece here for Christians. Christians like to say that we're powerless, in a, maybe in a false, humble way, where we say like, oh, man, I can't do anything. God does everything. I have no power. God has all the power. Um, and, and I get that, and I think that's true. But here's what I think is also true. One of the guys that was at the table that day when that woman came was a guy named Peter. Peter, years later, he wrote this down in the New Testament. Listen to what he said, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That's the kind of verse that you will skip if you're reading the Bible. You'll read that and you'll be like, pretty words, pretty words. Yeah, what's like the real practical nugget? Look, that's, that's real, guys. That's real. He says, God's power has granted you everything you need. His power is at work in you. So I know, and I've talked about if you've been here before and you've heard me teach, I've talked about we're sinners. We're, we're, there's depravity. There's brokenness. All of that is true. We're jacked, okay? Fair statement. What's also true is this verse. 
God's power, you give your life to him, you're baptized into him, his power is at work in you and has given you everything you need. God has thrown you the keys to the Ferrari. Here you go, take it out. And you and I, what we often do, we're like, man, I don't deserve a Ferrari. Man, I don't deserve that kind of thing. I can't handle that kind of power. I'm just gonna leave it in the garage. Or if we do drive it, we're like, I'm just gonna take it out in first gear, keep it safe. Couple little things, don't stretch my faith too much. Don't let, don't, don't let the horses run. Let's not see where these ponies can go. I'm just gonna kinda dial it back. God's power is in us. You are powerless in your own. You and I, we are. But God's power is at work in us and through us. That's true from the scripture. And so we need to acknowledge our own powerlessness, but for Christians, we need to also acknowledge that God's power is at work in us. And the woman in the story, she had to come to Jesus acknowledging her powerlessness, and that's, that's what we need to do as well. Secondly, we need to, you must present your request to God. Don't skip this. We present our request to anyone. If you, 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 you may talk, about, talk to people about your problems, but you have to take these things to God as well. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. I'll put it up on the screen. I want you to read this. Do not be anxious about anything. Yeah, but what about, yeah, but this is really bad. Yeah, can't I be anxious about this? Yeah, but if you had seen the situation, you'd be anxious too. No, this is really, this is a terrible one. We, who wouldn't be anxious in my situation? Paul says, to people who are under persecution in the first century, he says, do not be anxious about anything. That's pretty broad and sweeping, isn't it? Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, also a pretty broad word, everything, by prayer and supplication, which is like these requests, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to who? God. Speak up to God. Tell him what's going on. Tell him about your anxiety. Tell him about the pain. Tell him about where you're struggling. Yes, he already knows. Tell him anyway. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's true. And it's a promise of God. And I would love to explain to you how it works. But Paul just said, I can't. He says, the peace of God will surpass all understanding, which means there's not enough words in the English language for me to explain to you what the peace of God will look like and feel like when it lands on you. I just have experienced in moments, I've experienced it in moments of pain and I've seen it in people in this church and in the community. There's an unexplainable peace that God can bring to people even in the midst of really hard and horrible stuff. So we need to acknowledge that and take your request to God. He's the one who can actually fix things. He can give us that unshakable peace. This is what the woman does. She takes her pain to Jesus. She takes it right, right to him. Maybe she had already gone everywhere else. Maybe he was the last resort. I don't know. Maybe this is a last-ditch effort. But she takes it to him, and it works. And then finally, number three, enlist the help of others. This is key for us as we deal with pain, but it's also key for us as we build out our vision. A couple weeks ago, I told you to write down a vision you have for your life. And I even gave you some questions like, wouldn't it be extraordinary in my health, in my finances, in my faith, in, in my relationships? Like, what does extraordinary look like in your life? That's going to be a different answer for everybody, but, I, but I, I use that word extraordinary because I want us to just think big for a little bit. And if you think big about where your life is going and what you're doing and, and the vision that God's calling you to, you're going to get to the end of your rope pretty quickly. 
You're going to be like, I can't do that. That's too big for me. And that's a great place to be, honestly, because then it's going to make you reach out for, for other people to get their support and, and to, get, to get their help. I know, because I just read it to you, I know that God has given you all that you need. I know his power is at work in you. But part of what God has given you when I say God has given you all that you need is he's given you resources that are in other people around you and are in the community to help you go where he's calling you to go. This, this idea jumps off the pages of the New Testament. Over and over, you see the value of the community, the body of Christ, the people loving and serving. Scripture is saying the body should love one another. The body should serve one another. We should uh, reach out to, beyond our walls to other people and, and bring them in. We should um, link arms with people and walk together. We're supposed to be with other people because no one person has it all. So you have to go recruit helpers. Why? Well, I think the biggest reason is if you, if you lay out your vision to someone, that other person can help you expand it or maybe narrow it down and focus it. So if you say to someone, hey, um, I've been writing this down. I've been thinking about this. This is where I want to go with my life. I've, I've been doing this, um, you know, however old now, and I've been doing this, and this is where I think I need to go that maybe God's calling me here in the next 10 or 15 years. You say that in front of another person that you love and trust, and they're going to look at you, and they're going to say, wow. They're going to say, that sounds terrifying. They're going to say, how do you feel about that? They're going to say, maybe because they know you, they're going to say, yeah, but what about this? You've always talked about this. Why aren't you doing that? And then you'll be like, yeah, well, maybe. Well, you know, and you might renegotiate the vision. Or they're going to say to you, hey, that's, that's huge. Maybe you should talk to this person. Like, I think that could be even bigger than what you think it is right now. That's a huge idea. You need to talk to so-and-so, and, you, and they, may, they may help you, and they may start making connections for you and, and with you to other people who can expand the vision and can come along board and, and, and be on your team. We need others to speak into our lives because we can get all up in our own heads. And pride says, man, I don't want to tell people about what my vision is because they don't know me. Even if they're close to you, married to them, whatever, dating them, whatever, best friend, they don't know me, I'm not going to tell them. And people can see stuff in you that you can't see in you. Your pride tells you you're the only one who could really know. But God has placed other people around you to, to draw some of those things out and to challenge you and to push you forward. Remember, you must not fool yourself. And the problem is you're the easiest person to fool right? We have an incredible capacity to lie to ourselves, to kid ourselves about what's really going on, and other people around us can see that and point it out and challenge us. You probably know somebody right now. If you said, man, I want to get in the, if part of my vision is I want to be in this kind of shape and I want to run a marathon and I want to do X, Y, and Z with my health, you probably know someone who's done those things. You probably know someone who's like super fit, and you're like, I should take that person out for coffee and ask them how they did it. There's an idea. You may, you may say, man, I want my marriage to be better. Why don't you find a couple that's been married longer than you who seems to have a pretty healthy marriage? You can't know all the details, right, because you're not in their world, but they seem to have a pretty healthy marriage. Go sit down with them and say, can I buy you coffee? Can you explain to me how you got to where you are today? 
Same thing with faith. You may, you may know someone, you go, man, I, I'd like to grow in my faith. I want more wisdom. I want more godliness. I want to know God. Who do I know that has a vital relationship with Jesus? Maybe you just reach out to them and say, could you explain to me what you've done along the way, how, how it's been working for you? Do that stuff. Don't let pride tell you not to ask because they can't be bothered and who's got the time for that and I don't want to burden them or anything like that. Ask people, what have you done to get where you are? Finances. Some people handle their finances really well. You may know some. We do Financial Peace University here at this church. We teach a class where we help people grow in, their, in the way they handle their finances. Reach out to those people and say, hey, how, do, how, do you, how did you do this? We're, we're struggling here. Like, how, how do we make it, make it work? There's a blessing to be had if you will reach out and ask for help. You will gain the opportunity to learn you will gain the opportunity to collaborate with someone. You'll gain the opportunity to not just stay stuck where you are. Man, if the Canaanite woman in this story had said, oh, Jesus is in town. I don't want to bother him. Oh, man, he's got enough going on. Oh, I, you know, he's not going to be worried about my problems. If she had said that, we would not be reading the story today. The reason she ends up on the pages of the holy book is because she swallowed her pride, she reached out, asked God, and asked someone else. She, she got outside of herself and said, can you, can you help? And that's, that's what we need to do. So, homework. I thought about giving homework every single week of this series, um, but you didn't pay for this class, so uh, you probably don't wanna do homework. Um, but here's an opportunity. I told you a couple weeks ago, write down the vision you have and, if, and until you write it down, it's like not real. You just kind of float. You know, when you write it down, you start getting crystal clear about where God's calling you and what, where you want to go. Um, take that vision and sit down with one other person who knows you and tell them that. Print it out, put it in front of them, say, this is where I think I'm going. What do you see? And, yo, that stuff's terrifying. It might be terrifying to put it out there in front of another person. But, man, sometimes the terrifying stuff's the good stuff. And it becomes more real then, and, and, and you start to really get going on it when, when you do that. So, so there's your homework. Reach out and ask for help. You're not the only person who's struggling with X. We've done this in this room back in January. A lot of people struggling with a lot of things. And if you were here that day and you stood, stood up and sat down and we did the whole thing, a lot of people deal with stuff. You're not the only one. Reach out and ask for help for help, and make requests of others to come alongside you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you help us as we figure out how to swallow our pride and not, um, and, and not just sort of bunker in and pretend like no one else will understand us or not share the scary thing that God is calling us to. Help us to reach out and, 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 uh, and dream big and, and share it with a friend. Um, God, I pray that great conversations happen out of this morning, that there's some coffees that happen this week, there's some lunches that happen, there's some, hey, let's get together and talk um, that happens in the next couple weeks over what we did this morning, that no one would feel that twinge of pride that says, I don't need to share with other people, I don't want to burden them or whatever, but that we'll reach out. Um, God, help us to do that and, and, and in doing that, become the community you're calling us to be. In your son's name we pray, amen.